Chapter 5. Lie number 5. The Great Omission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 18-20 In chapter 1, we looked at Jesus' authority and how he did not always possess all authority in heaven and on earth. As we proceed through the Great Commission, we want to look carefully at what his charge to the eleven disciples actually was. What did he mean by what he said? And what did his disciples understand? The Great Commission Go, therefore, and make disciples. The first mandate that Jesus gave his beloved eleven was to go and make disciples. Let's zoom in on the word disciples to see if any deeper meaning can be extracted from it. As common sense would have it, before disciples can be made, there is first a need for a teacher. Were the eleven disciples teachers by now? Is that why Jesus commanded them to go and make disciples of their own? Absolutely not. Jesus knew that, and so did the eleven. They were all painfully aware of their shortcomings. Yet that is not what I believe Jesus meant by sending them out to make disciples. Let's look at the rabbi-disciple relationship in first-century Israel in order to gain some insight from where this model for the perpetuation of teaching came. Our picture of a disciple does not even come close to the Hebrew picture of a Talmud. In English, a disciple means a student, one who learns. Now, as a teacher, I know that a student wants to know what I know for various reasons. Maybe he likes the class. Maybe she needs the grade. He may even like the teacher. Ray Vanderlaan says it like this. A student wants to know what the teacher knows, but a disciple wants to be what the teacher is. You want more than anything else in the world to be just like your rabbi. You want to think like him, act like him. You want to understand what he understands. See the world through his eyes. You want to live like he lives. Treat your wife like he treats his. Raise your kids like he raised his. But more than anything else, you want to walk with the Lord like he does. Where did the rabbis develop their ideas about discipleship? Did they look to the scriptures for their model? Well, does a cobbler make shoes? They found their model for discipleship in two men specifically, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was known for being one of Israel's greatest prophets. By God's great power, he performed amazing miracles, such as raising the widow's son, calling down fire from heaven, and causing oil to miraculously flow from a pitcher. He had unbelievable adventures with mountaintop experiences. No doubt, he felt like he was walking side by side with the Lord. But he also had very low moments, when he felt like his world was disintegrating before his very eyes. After one of these, the Lord spoke to him and told him to choose Elisha as his successor. Jesus followed the same model of teacher and Talmud. A Talmud is the word for disciple in Hebrew. One of the main differences between the first century Israel model 
and the Elijah-Elisha model was that in Jesus' day, the rabbi did not solicit the Talmud. The potential Talmud always solicited discipleship from a rabbi. There were two exceptions to this formula. Rabbi Hillel was known to have sought out disciples to follow him. And, of course, our Rabbi Jesus called his disciples to follow him. A disciple would follow a rabbi for months and even years in hopes to become just like him in all facets of life. He would eventually take the best of his rabbi's teachings, incorporate them into his own understandings of Torah, work, marriage, and life in general, and this is what he would teach his disciples. However, when Jesus told his 11 disciples to go and make disciples, he made it very clear that they were not to make disciples of themselves. On the contrary, they were to teach their disciples to obey everything that Jesus taught them to obey. In other words, Simon, Andrew, James, John, Judah, et al. were to make disciples of Jesus. They were to pass on Jesus' teachings and his teachings alone. This is very important in understanding the role that Peter, Paul, James, or any other disciple of Jesus was to play. We are reminded in various places in the New Testament of the role a disciple-maker is to play such as in Luke 10, verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called teachers, for you have one teacher, the Messiah. Matthew 28, 8-10 Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Emphasis mine. Any disciple of Jesus is a disciple of Jesus irrespective of who made that disciple. This is why Paul got so upset with the Corinthian believers in chapter 1 when he wrote, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, Well, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The only teaching that Paul was expected or allowed to pass on to any other disciple, whether said disciple was made by Paul, Apollos, Peter, or any other, was Jesus' teaching. This point is vastly overlooked. It is a point that seems so small, yet so much of the bankruptcy present in Christianity today is as a result of the belief that Paul could teach his own version of this or that. It is precisely our lack of understanding of the expectations of disciples of Jesus that has brought us to where we are today. Did you realize that Paul actually commanded his Corinthian readers in the first letter to obey no doctrine, including his own, 
other than the Torah and the prophets. That's right. In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, Paul tells the Corinthian disciples to not go beyond what is written. In chapters 1 through 4, factions began to surface, and divisions resulted from some claiming to follow Paul, others Apollos, still others Cephas, and others Jesus. Paul rhetorically asks if Jesus was divided, if Paul was crucified for them, if they were baptized into the name of Paul. He then demoted himself in their eyes to a mere slave of Jesus. He said, Jesus appointed him to be a servant. Jesus' disciples, all of them, including Paul, were allowed to speak only the message that their master Jesus gave them. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Of all the words in the command, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, the most mind-blowing word, the word that left the eleven disciples wide-eyed and mouth agape, was the word nations. We need to restore meaning to the word nations as Jesus used it here at the end of Matthew. You see, in Hebrew, Jesus would have said goyim. In Greek, the translators would have and did use the word ethne. This word does not mean nations like you and I probably think of nations, as in the United Nations, the European nations, etc. Nations, to the average modern Western ear, conjures up the idea of something national, something governmental, something having to do more with borders, language, and nationality. But to the Hebrew ear, the word nations meant un, unworthy, unforgiven, unclean, untouchable. A goy in Hebrew or an ethnos in Greek does not solely mean nation. In the Hebrew ear and mind, it means Gentile. For it is the same word in both of those languages. A Gentile was someone who was out of covenant with the Lord. To the Hebrew mind, a Gentile was the enemy, the hostile, the infidel. Just to be clear, Jesus did not tell his disciples to go and make Christians out of all the different peoples out there in the world. No. Jesus dropped every jaw on the mountain at the end of Matthew when he ordered his disciples to make further disciples of the unworthies. By Jesus' day, every Jew living in Israel was raised to loathe the Samaritans because not only were they a transplanted people, by the emperor of Assyria to replace the tribes carried away in the Assyrian captivity, but they were even given a different Torah to follow, one that was a syncretism between the law of Moses and many foreign laws and practices. This can be found in 2 Kings 17, verses 24 through 41. The Samaritans were especially loathsome to the Jews living in Israel at the time of Jesus because they claimed the Lord as their God, all the while serving and bowing down to their idols. When Jesus told the eleven to go and make disciples of all nations, he actually meant all Gentiles, 
including the ones living next door in Samaria. There was no limit, geographically speaking, to the distance they were to travel. But even more shocking was that there was no limit to the kind of person that was candidate for discipleship. Viking, Spaniard, Eskimo, Native American, Asian, Russian, all of them out of covenant with God, all of them being called to come into covenant with him once again. Of course, we have used the modern names of many of these nations to belabor the point. Jesus had no boundary, be it territorial or cultural, that would eliminate one from being called out. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The word in Hebrew is mikvah. Contrary to popular belief, baptism was not thought up in the New Testament. Israel had been doing mikvah since she came up out of the water of the Red Sea at Moses' helm. To mikvah is to wash oneself in water. It is far more than a symbol. It is reality on a different plane. For example, when one was in mourning, sackcloth was really put on, clothing was really torn, and hair was truly pulled out as a physical expression of a non-physical reality. Jesus told his disciples to mikvah their newly made disciples because mikvah was a veritable rebirth. Israel was reborn after crossing the sea. In the same way, one who does mikvah is also born again as a new creation. Jesus directed his disciples to mikvah all new disciples because they must die to their past and literally rise from the watery grave to become, wait for it, not a son of Moses, not a son of Judah, a Jew, but rather a son of Abraham. To become a son of Abraham is what affords the Gentile, that is, the one out of covenant with God, the legal right to become part of the family through covenant. This is the mystery of the gospel with a capital G. The Gentiles could now be part of the family because the renewed covenant was made with Jesus whose vows were never and will never be broken. This is why all who would come to the Father must come through Jesus. And teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you, also known as the great omission. And this is the part that I missed the first 95,000 times I read or heard this passage quoted. And teach them. Teach who? Teach the Gentile disciples that the eleven are to go into all the world to make. Teach them what? The eleven are to teach them, the new Gentile disciples, to observe, to obey, to keep everything that Jesus had commanded the eleven to obey. Then, ever so slightly, the question dawned over the horizon of my mind. What did Jesus command his eleven disciples to obey, observe, and keep? In order to answer that question, the very question that the disciples themselves were certainly asking in their own hearts during this unprecedented moment in time, 
we must go back to the beginning of Matthew and make note of every time and everything that Jesus ever commanded his disciples to obey. Because naturally, the most important question that anyone can ask is, what did Jesus command his disciples to obey? The reason this question is paramount is because it would be the prime directive that every succeeding disciple, right up to the present day, would be required to follow. The answer to that question ought to have the most profound, life-changing impact on what I, the reader of the Gospel of Matthew, am required to obey. In whatever century I might live, or from whichever nation I might hail. Because there was no doubt that any disciple made by Jesus' eleven disciples and the disciples made by those disciples in perpetual succession would be required to obey whatever it is that Jesus taught his first disciples to obey. We Christians are so far removed in time from the New Testament that we don't always make the connections that Jesus intended for us to make. Here, I will make the connection for maximum transparency that all Christians, that is, you and I, were always supposed to make. Jesus was given all authority in heaven and on earth after his resurrection, including the authority that had been previously passed to the devil. Luke chapter 4. Think about the following statement for a moment and let it sink in deeply. The very first thing that Jesus did with all authority in the two realms was to strengthen, establish, and double down on the very teachings he had already taught his disciples before his crucifixion. Nothing new, Nothing yet to be uncovered, nothing to be revealed through the pen of Paul or Peter or James. The magnitude of this revelation cannot be overstated. Jesus now had all authority in every realm of existence, and with that authority, he did not command anything new. He did not establish a new world order, according to Jesus. He did not put an end to all the old things that didn't work so well when he was not in charge. On the contrary, with his newfound authority over every single thing in existence, both in the physical and non-physical realms, the first and only thing that he commanded to be perpetuated for all time were all of his former teachings. What does that say about the validity and duration of his former teachings? That, my friends, is absolutely astonishing and is what Christianity has missed for the last 1,700 years. I believe that it was not until Jesus was given this authority that he was able to send his disciples into the nations or the Gentiles. Matthew 10. Once he received all authority on earth, the very first thing he did was to send his disciples into the devil's former stomping grounds. 
Understanding what Jesus did with this new authority and when he did it is essential to a clear picture of what the rest of the New Testament attempts to address. Until the question is answered, the question to end all other questions, what did Jesus command his disciples to obey? One cannot fully grasp what the writings of the New Testament mean or how far back they truly reach. Until we thoroughly comprehend what it is that Jesus taught his disciples to observe, all else is and has been mere guesswork. This chapter will attempt to unveil exactly what Jesus taught his disciples to obey, the very thing that has been obscured, altered, and outright buried for nearly 18 centuries. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew 5-7, through He did not yet possess all authority in both heaven and earth, but He did possess the authority of heaven. With Jesus as the Father's ultimate prophet, according to Deuteronomy 18.18, He was able to say things like, You have heard that it was said to those of old, Had Jesus been about to add something to the Torah, take something from the Torah, or change the Torah in any way, he would not have remarked, you have heard that it was said to those of old. He would have declared, you have heard that it was written to those of old. Jesus never attacked or altered the written Torah or the law of Moses, not in Matthew 5-7, through nor anywhere else in the New Testament. Jesus denounced the oral Torah exclusively. The oral Torah was a modern term for the takanot of the elders, or, said another way, the man-made laws enacted by the religious leaders of Israel. Jesus was the prophet with a capital P. In John 1, verse 21 and verse 25, John reports that priests and Levites were sent from Jerusalem to ask John, Are you the Messiah, Elijah, or the prophet? Our English Bibles capitalized the P in prophet because they understood that Israel had been waiting for the prophet to appear who was prophesied to come all the way back in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord would indeed use prophets prior to concurrently with and subsequent to Jesus. However, any prophet used by God Almighty could only speak that which God commanded him or her. That was the preventative measure that the Almighty instituted to keep anyone and everyone from introducing alien doctrines into his eternal Torah and simply claiming that he or she had received a word from the Lord. This changes everything. The answer to what Jesus commanded his disciples to obey is found in the events of Jesus' life and ministry, according to John, Luke, Mark, and Matthew. If one takes on this gospel challenge, something wonderfully odd leaps off of every page. Not once! Did Jesus ever command any of his disciples to do anything 
other than obey the law of Moses as Jesus interpreted it. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus only ever commanded his disciples to observe the Torah as interpreted by the one and only God himself expressed as a human being. Read the Gospel of Mark, and it's the same thing all over again. Only Torah all the time. Luke will be different, right? Nope. Same thing. Obey the law of Moses. Surely John will tell us when, where, and how the Sabbath was changed to Sunday, and the food laws were overturned, and the feasts of the Lord were changed to become the feasts of the Jews, right? Once again, the answer is unswervingly no. Those things were never spoken of in John. And again, nothing changed. Jesus only commanded his disciples to obey the law of Moses as interpreted by him. Then he commanded them to teach all their disciples to do the exact same thing, with no end ever mentioned, discussed, hinted at, or alluded to. It is undeniable, incontrovertible, and impossible to come to a different conclusion when one reads the four Gospels and the only book that Jesus himself authored, the Revelation. Things only began to change with the Acts of the Apostles and Paul. But I want to be very clear. I do not believe that in the Acts of the Apostles or in the letters of Paul that there was a change. The beginning of Acts shows no change whatsoever, as exemplified in chapter 2, verse 42. The believers devoted themselves to four things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. But, once again, what was the apostles' teaching? Only what they were permitted to teach. Only what Jesus allowed them to teach. That is, all of his former teachings. In fact, the law of Moses was still cited and referred to many times from chapter 1 to chapter 7. Stephen ended his address to the Sanhedrin in verse 53 of chapter 7, still talking about the law of Moses and how it was not being kept by the very people who were supposed to be the guardians of the law. Things really start to get interesting when one approaches the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. This is where God allegedly overturned his own kosher food laws. Yet, a careful and critical reading of Acts 10 has absolutely nothing to do with food whatsoever. Did the disciple Peter, who spent at the very least 70 weeks with Jesus, day in and day out, sticking his foot in his mouth, blurting out answers, drinking in the wisdom, and learning every single word that came out of the master's mouth, apparently miss the teaching in Mark chapter 7, where Jesus presumably overturned the kosher food laws. For Peter's own intrepid defiance of the Lord's direct command to rise, kill, and eat was, By no means, Lord, 
For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Was the voice that Peter heard that of Jesus? If Peter was speaking with Jesus, why didn't Peter say, Well, absolutely, Lord, I will rise, kill, and eat, since you already repealed the kosher food laws back in Mark chapter 7. Thank you, Jesus. I don't mind if I do have myself a ham sandwich and some shrimp cocktail. If Peter was not hearing the voice of Jesus, then why did God the Father not correct Peter right then and there and remind him that that law was already overturned by his son? Was Peter getting a second chance from God the Father there in Acts 10? Since he apparently missed Jesus' alleged teaching on this in Mark 7. Impossible. For two reasons. First, Jesus never changed the kosher food laws in Mark chapter 7. That story has nothing to do with what is considered food and what is not, but, rather, how one contracts ritual defilement. Jesus never changed any law, let alone a 1,500-year-old food law in one sentence from a missing parable in a parenthetical statement in verse 19. And second, this vision has nothing to do with food. God was speaking to a Jew in a very Jewish way, in picture. God was using something with which Peter and every other Jew in Israel and beyond would have been intimately familiar, their diet. The vision is about people, not food. The vision is about what Judaism called common and unclean among the sons of Adam. The vision is about God using the kosher food laws to make a point. What was the point? God never called the Romans common. In fact, God never called any Gentile common. That was a teaching handed down in the traditions of the fathers, a.k.a. the Pharisaical Takanot. What God had made clean, one shall not call common. That is the point of the vision. Has modern Western Christianity become so arrogant as to think that upon reading this story, the answer to the meaning of the vision was so obvious, so easy. People forget to read verse 17, where Peter, a seasoned disciple and Jewish young man, raised in a Torah-observant household, community, and culture, was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean. Yet, Christianity got it immediately. Does that sound a little strange or arrogant to you? If Peter was pondering long and hard as to what the vision he had seen might mean, how did he not think? that the vision might be about food? Did Peter possibly think that maybe God just overturned his own kosher food laws? Or would that not only be preposterous to Peter, but also impossible due to the fact that God cannot change his laws any more than he could sin or join forces with Satan? And that was why Peter was so confused. The Great Commission 
was revolutionary for one reason and one reason alone. Prior to it, Gentiles were out of bounds. But after Jesus' resurrection, in which he gave a swift kick in the face to death, the keys of the kingdoms of the earth were passed back to a son of Adam, the son of Adam. And now no one and no place was off limits. The Torah did not change. The authority of the Torah did not change. What changed was how the children of God were to live out the Torah from Jesus on. No longer were they belabored and heavy laden with fear of punishment and death. As Paul rightly claimed in Galatians 5 and verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. No longer would the sons of Abraham live in fear. No longer would they be slaves. The tyrannical imposition of man-made laws that crushed people under their burdensome weight spewed out by the Pharisaical regime came to an end when Jesus came up out of the water of baptism and began his authoritative teachings on the law of Moses, which he called the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Galatians 5.1 says that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Free from what, Paul? Christianity has taught that Christ set us all free from the law of Moses, plain and simple. This interpretation is yet another lie that Christianity has been fed for far too long. Freedom is not the elimination of law. That is called anarchy. Freedom is the opportunity to do the right thing. The right thing always has been and always will be doing the king's will. Jesus, the rightful heir to the throne of humanity, has one will, the will of the Father in heaven. And the Father's will has never and will never change. So, why all the fuss? Why does obeying everything Jesus taught his disciples to obey sound so dreadful to the Christian ear? Obeying God's instructions, written in the law of Moses, sounds awful because we have inherited the same lies that our fathers did. Another lie passed on to us is that the law of Moses was so great a burden that he had to send Jesus to untie that unbearable yoke from off our necks. Well, either God is a liar or he is not. If his laws are too hard, then God is a liar and should be brought to account for his sin. But if God cannot lie, would not lie, and does not lie, then Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14, is true. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, 
neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. John says it this way in 1 John 5 verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. When we listen to Jesus and obey what he taught, we are listening to God the Father and obeying what God taught. They are one and the same in essence, but they are expressed differently. What's mine is mine. We Christians love to claim the promises and covenants found in the First Testament, specifically those that we like or that bless our lives. I have never heard anyone complain about the Old Testament covenant that God made with the earth in Genesis 9 to never destroy it again by floodwaters. We have no problem with the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 15, in which God promised that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We love the covenants of Deuteronomy 29, 14 and 15, Jeremiah 31, 31, Nehemiah 1, 5, we Christians love to claim the myriad of promises God made in the First Testament when they benefit us. Yet, when it comes to claiming and receiving what God calls life in the form of commandments, precepts, statutes, and laws, we instantly reject them. We declare that those were for the Jews, meaning the people of Israel. It is nauseating to hear the chant from the pews and the pulpits that we are sold out for God. We must do all that the Lord commands. We would give up anything for the Lord. But if the Lord asked us to eat differently, not a chance. If the Lord asked us to keep one day per week special and set apart Saturday, forget about it. If God told us to meet with him, on his appointed times, fat chance. Have we not read our Bibles? Do we not realize that his covenants and promises are inextricably bound up in his laws and instructions? They cannot be divided. Deuteronomy eleven twenty six through 28 says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today. Do you see the conditional relationship described in this verse? He blesses those who keep his commandments and curses those who do not. Because our fathers have inherited lies and because Christianity has abdicated 
her responsibility to question what our fathers have inherited. We have been allowed and affirmed in our contradictory practices, such as claiming promises and covenants while disposing of the rules and restrictions. We like to go to the New Testament for our instructions. So, let's take a look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. What did Luke mean when he said that Paul, Barnabas, and Silas preached the word of the Lord in the book of Acts? Or what did Mark mean by And Jesus was preaching the word to them in Mark chapter 2, verse 2. What is this word? This is where many Christians short-circuit or start to twitch nervously. We never thought to stop and ask, what was the word that was preached to the people? Most say that it was the gospel or the good news about Jesus, yet That only pushes the problem back one level. See chapter 4, the gospel. 1 John 2 and verse 7 explains, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Here, John seems to indicate that the word that they have all heard is what they have had since the beginning. He calls it an old commandment. But here's the best part. Look above once again at the quote from 1 John 2, 4-5. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of god is perfected look at how john defines god's word in verse 5 he equates keeping his commandments with keeping his word he defines his word as his commandments they are synonyms identical exactly the same, and equivalence. I wonder if the word that Jesus preached to those in the house in Mark chapter 2 was the word that Paul and Barnabas and Silas preached 
to those in all the world. The commandments of God that were taught to everyone who had attached himself to Israel since the beginning. Let's go for a test drive. Personally, years ago, I began to test drive the car, if you will. The car I was going to test drive were all Ten Commandments, the teachings on food and the feasts of the Lord. But because the Sabbath, the food laws, and the appointed times were so alien to me, the first thing I did was look to modern-day Judaism to see how I should keep them. As I began to slowly slog my way through all the do's and do-nots of Sabbath, I became very frustrated and angry. Then it hit me like a ton of bricks. Much of modern-day Judaism is a continuation of first-century Phariseeism. So, I looked to the Messianic Jewish community for help on how to obey these laws. And what I found is that many, many Messianic Jews are themselves looking to Judaism for how to understand and how to live out the commandments of God. They look to the great sages like Rashi and Rambam, to Akiva and Hillel, Shammai, and all the contributors of the Mishnah and the Talmud. One day, not too long ago, I heard a voice in my head that sounded like me. The me inside my head said, Mark, do you have a Bible? Yes. Are you able to read your Bible? Yes. Do you have a sound mind? Well, that's debatable. (laughs) Yes. Why don't you try the following? Read your Bible, the whole thing, not just the New Testament, and understand everything you can. Remember my promise. If you seek, you will find. If you ask, it will be given to you. And if you knock, the door will be opened to you in the way of people around you and powerful learning aids. Now go, read, and bring your questions and your understanding to the people around you. Some will fight you, others will not. Begin to live out my commandments. Surely that is not too hard, is it? No. Eat what God calls food. Surely that is not too hard, is it? No. Celebrate his feasts with him and his children. Surely that's not too difficult, is it? No. Mark, God will give you as much truth as you are able to obey. My friends, I can tell you that today, the Sabbath is my absolute favorite day of the week. I cannot wait for it to come and do not want it to end. I have finally found the antidote to the exhaustion that I have lived for the last 30 plus years. I get to be with my most cherished people. I get a 24-hour break from the constant onslaught of normal day-to-day life. On Sabbath, I eat well, drink well, and fellowship well with my family and friends. 
I also eat differently now, in my own house. If I am offered something to eat outside of my house that I do not choose to eat in my house, I eat that food with a glad and joyful heart. I set aside one command in order to honor a greater command, because that is what my master and King Jesus taught me to do. The appointed times or feasts of the Lord are the key to understanding my Father in heaven and his Son and their plan for all time, past, present, and future. I have had more fun exploring and testing and trying out how to honor my Father through his feasts than I can shake a stick at. He said, If you love me, keep my commands. Salvation never comes into the picture. That is because he also said, If you love me, believe in the one that I have sent in my name. I am saved by grace through the faith of Jesus and because I believe he is who he said he is. The question posed at the end of chapter 4 was, How now shall we live? This is how I live now. I do not fear death because I'm no longer a slave of death. Sure, I don't want to die any more than the next guy. I'm not a big fan of pain and suffering. But my salvation is hidden in Messiah Jesus. Signed, sealed, delivered. But I still have to live this earthly life. So, how now shall I live? I will live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. By honoring the instructions that my Father has given to me through His Son, the last prophet. I just want the Lord to know how much I love Him and how thankful I am that He brought His gospel to fruition through Jesus so that I could be part of the family. If you love God, do what he asked you to do. Could any parent on earth possibly find fault in that? None of us wants our kids to say they will do what we've taught them. We want our kids to do what we've taught them. Why? Because we love them. And that is how they show that they love us. Is God any different? When folks ask me, how many commandments should I keep? My answer is all that you can. Remember, obeying commandments does not make you a son of Abraham. Jesus does. Obeying your father's commands just shows him how much you love him. And some days I love him more than others, but I am always his son.